Well, it is great to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Chris uh, Shipley, and I'm from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, and uh, soon to be uh, Hope Bible Church, uh, Hope Church Mississauga. We're changing our name in the fall. I think you guys are too. Uh, that's exciting. Uh, it's always a joy for me to be here. Um, I haven't been back since you've been back in this building. It's been great. Uh, one of your elders, uh, Adam, took me around and showed me the renos. It's so exciting to see God's provision guiding you as a flock to different locations, different pens for the sheep to meet in, and um, what a blessing that is. I know it's not easy, but God has been faithful. And uh, your church has been such an encouragement to our church. I know Pastor Kevin, Pastor Jeff has been, have been uh, tremendously encouraging. In fact, I was in uh, Hope, uh, Toronto North, last weekend, and Pastor Jeff was um, leading worship there. So I feel like I've been kind of worshiping with you for a couple of weeks now, and it was such a delight to be with him, and particularly your other pastor, uh, Kyle Hunter. Uh, he's been a personal friend and encouragement to me. We get together every month, a bunch of the biblical counselors in the region, just to encourage each other, just to pray. Uh, it's insane to try to do anything in the Christian life alone, and so it's so wise and biblical to do everything in community, and so we get together every month just to encourage each other, just to pray for each other, and you need to know how much of encouragement your whole uh, pastoral team are to us, but Kyle particularly to me, so it's such a joy uh, to be here and uh, share God's word with you. We're going to be looking in Psalm 67. If you don't uh, have a Bible, I don't know if you give Bibles out here. or um, So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. I'm sure an usher will find a Bible and give it to you. If you don't own one, you get to keep it. Um, I think you do that. Uh, that's the great thing about being a, a guest preacher. You don't know how much you can give away. If there's something up here that you like, uh, just ask. So if you have a Bible at home, feel free to return it on the way, <laughs> on the way out. Uh, when you get your Bible, just crack it in half, go a bit to the left, and you'll find Psalm 67. In our house, we love to sing. If you ever come over to our place, you'll hear music. You'll hear singing. There's people singing in the kitchen, singing in their bedroom, singing in the bathroom, in the shower. Uh, you'll hear people singing to iTunes or acapella with an instrument or no instrument. There's just typically a song in our house being sung by someone. I love it. I love hearing that. And we try to get together as a family regularly for family worship, where we just read, pray, sing. Uh, read the word, pray, and sing. Just nice and simple and short. I need things that are simple. And it's wonderful to gather together. Sometimes we'll grab a, a hymnal, crack it open, and sing some classics. I love that. Sometimes we'll sing a recent worship song that we heard that was new. Uh, there was one I just heard that we just sang. That's the first time I've ever heard that song. I really love it. So I want to maybe bring that back. Maybe we can learn that at our church and, and family worship. I love that. That is one of my favorite times, hearing uh, our kids sing God's praises. One of the other times I really love is in these kind of contexts, when our church family gets together as brothers and sisters in Christ from different places and regions, different ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures and people groups coming together as a family of God to sing the praises of God. That is one of my great delights. And it's very biblical, in fact. Uh, singing is essential to our faith. You can go right back to the very beginning of the church, and it's always been a singing church. The church has always sung. And you hear, even in Ephesians 5, this is one of the marks of being full of the Spirit of God. One of the evidences that the Spirit of God lives inside of you as you sing. It says that we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody from our heart to the Lord, because he's given us a new heart, and he's caused the Spirit to dwell in our new heart, and we cannot help but sing. It just kind of runs through the blood of believers. It's just a, a part of the rhyme and rhythm of the redeemed is that we cannot help but sing. We are, in fact, saved to sing. And so it's no surprise when we open up our Bible, we find right in the middle this massive section of songs, which are called the Psalms. 
And we're looking at Psalm 67 today. And God's Spirit has given us all of these different songs that help us sing God's praises or weep and lament in a way that pours our heart out to God or calls us to remember all that he has done. All of these things the the Psalms recount, but they just don't do it in a way that we are to read them, but to sing them from our heart to the Lord. So let let me just read to us Psalm 67. And I don't know if you do this in church, but if you could just stand, if you're able to, for the reading of God's word, and I'll just read Psalm 67 where you are. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we can see, Psalm 67 is a prayer. It's an urgent plea and petition for God to really fulfill one of the greatest promises he has ever made. One of the greatest promises he has ever given to his people. You'll see in verse 1. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us. This idea of God being gracious or God blessing his people goes way back to the Old Testament in Genesis 12 when God makes a promise with a fellow named Abraham. And it's a pretty important promise. In fact, all of the hope of the world will rest in this one promise. And it goes like this. Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now there's many things that are being said here, but there's two incredible, unconditional, no-strings-attached promises that God is making here to Abraham. One, that God will bless Abraham. And two, that God will bless the world through Abraham. And this is so important because all of the hope, not only the Old Testament, but now even the New Testament, hangs on this promise, as we will see. Now, there's a lot of confusion, I think, today when we start talking about blessing. What does it mean to be blessed by God? Someone sneezes and they say, God bless you, and send a text and you end it, God bless you, or you hear someone on TV asking for money and saying they'll bless you. What is going on with that word? How are people using it? Well, we need to know how the Bible uses it. And the way the Bible defines blessing or how to be blessed by God is this. To be blessed by God means that you experience the fullness of God, that you experience the fullness of God. That's what it means to be blessed. To experience the fullness of God means that you have or receive all of God. You receive his presence, his kindness, his patience, his comfort and peace, his power, his correction and discipline, but also the way in which he lovingly guides and leads his people. You get all of God. And this idea that when you get all of God, you are blessed. You experience God. What more would we ever want as people? Is there anything better that we could receive? God knows this. And so the greatest thing that God can give us as people is himself. That is to be blessed, to experience the fullness of God. 
Now, we experience the fullness of God by faith, but not faith in just our opinions of God or whatever, but through faith in his word, because it's in his word that God has revealed who he is, his character, his attributes, all of his characteristics. It's in his word that he has revealed his saving acts and his wondrous deeds and all that he has done, and it's through his word that we read about the promises of God and all of these incredible promises that the people of God are to hold on to and lean on and cling to. And so it's through the word of God that God has revealed himself. And so it's by faith, by trusting in God's own testimony of himself, that we experience God or experience the fullness of God. First, by believing in who he is as revealed in Jesus as we just sang, that he alone is worthy of his name, Yeshua, the Lord saves. And we believe that, and so we begin to experience God first through salvation, being forgiven and washed clean of all of our sins, and being clothed with his righteousness, being declared right in God's sight or justified, being indwelt by the very Spirit of God who takes up residence inside of our new heart, being adopted into the very family of God. These are all blessings that we experience in knowing God and trusting him. And in so doing, we come to experience the fullness of God. Now, we see then that blessing is primarily spiritual. But not just spiritual, but it's also physical. But this is where it's important to clarify that all the physical blessings that flow from salvation and God are not all experienced in the here and now on this side of when Jesus returns. When Jesus comes back, he will welcome us into a whole new heavens and earth that he has totally renovated and made new. And at that time, we will not only experience, but it will be guaranteed that we will experience all the physical blessings that are tied and paired with the spiritual blessings. But until that time, the way in which we experience physical blessing is really up to God insofar as they help us grow spiritually or realize our spiritual blessings. So if God sees it wisest to give me health in this moment because that's going to help me grow in Christ, then that's what he'll give me. But if he in his wisdom decides to not give health but all the grace to persevere through an illness because he knows that's going to refine my faith and help me grow in Christ, then out of love and wisdom, that's what he'll give me. And so that is how we experience God's fullness and blessing now. We get all the spiritual blessings right now and the physical ones as God deems best for us in the growing and maturing of our faith, knowing that when Jesus comes back, we'll get the whole kit and caboodle. So this is how God speaks of blessing. And we talk about that because I think it's really important to clarify that in our day. And this is what God is actually promising to Abraham back in Genesis 12. That as Abraham trusted God and it was counted as righteousness, so as Abraham trusts in God, he will experience the blessing of God, the, the fullness of God in his own life. But he becomes a template of his faith. The way he just trusted in the Lord by faith and was saved he didn't earn it. He didn't go to school and write an exam and get it. He couldn't buy it. It wasn't bequeathed to him and in a will. No, he just trusted in the Lord by faith, and it was received by grace. That becomes the template for us, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But not only does Abraham's faith be a template, but through Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, is actually the object of that faith, that saves. Jesus alone, his name means the Lord saves, as we just sang. He now becomes the object of that faith, that saving faith, not just for Abraham, not just for the Jews or Israel, but for all peoples of all nations. This is the promise, <laughs> just in half of a verse, that we're only halfway through the first verse, and already Psalm 67 is reaching way back into the Old Testament and saying, you remember that promise? that God made to Abraham, we're still praying it in Psalm 67. But he also picks up another idea here. He says it in a little bit of a different way. 
in verse 1. He says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. This is really another way of saying the exact same thing. For God's face to shine on his people is the same as God blessing his people. I don't know if you remember that uh, prayer back in Numbers 6. God actually commanded uh, Aaron, the high priest, to pray and pronounce this blessing over the people of God regularly, that they would really receive this. Let me read this to you. Number six, he was to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the countenance of his face. May his countenance be upon you and give you peace. That's what Aaron the high priest was to pray over and pronounce regularly. And that, doesn't that sound exactly like verse 1? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. What would that be like? What would that be like to have God's face shine on you? We were uh, recently camping as a family, and by God's grace, uh, we had great weather. It hasn't always been that way. And so I don't know if you've ever been camping or just out for a picnic, and it just pours, and you're wet, and it's drizzling, and you're cold, and you're just, ugh. And then, all of a sudden, the clouds kind of break, and these, this shaft of warm light just begins to hit your face. You feel the sun's warmth just pouring over your body and just kind of filling you up with its warmth. That's what it's like for God to smile. That's what it's like for God's people to feel the smile of God on them. As a parent, you may have had a situation where your kid's crying out and they finally look up at you and, and cry out your name, Mom, Dad, and you look at them and you smile on them, this warm smile. And immediately, that child feels their mom and their dad's love and comfort and safety and security. They know it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Mom's smiling. Dad's smiling. We're good. And that's this idea that God's, God wants his people to know, to experience. Not just once in a while when we perform well and check all the boxes. No, but because God loves us and has made us his own by grace. And he wants to smile on us. He wants us to know that his face is lit on his people, that his good gaze is on them all the time, that God in his kindness smiles on his people. We need to have a right idea of God. Sometimes we get this idea that God is this uh, angry judge. You just have no idea what makes him happy, what makes him angry, so I assume he's angry with me all the time, and that's not the picture that the Bible describes at all of who God is towards his people, that as he has saved you by grace, he loves you. There wasn't anything that you did that prompted him to save you. It says in Jeremiah 31 that he has loved you with an everlasting love. Now, that goes back a long way. That goes way back, not just before creation. It goes way back before time itself began. Way before you had any time to either impress him or tick him off. God has loved his people with an everlasting love. And in your story, maybe it was when you were 6 or 16 or 36 or 66, God saved you. And you realized and became the recipient of that everlasting love as it was applied to you in that moment. You need to know that God loves you as a child of God now, and his good gaze is on you for good. This is what Psalm 67 is beginning to pray. God, would you do this? Would you remember this promise that you gave Abraham to be a blessing and this prayer you gave Aaron? that your face would shine upon us. God, would you fulfill these two things, this promise and this prayer? God, would you do this? Israel was to pray this, and we as God's people today ought to pray this prayer. 
why? <laughs> why would we ever pray kind of at this dangerous prayer that God would bless us? Sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? So why would God be leading us in this psalm to begin prayer, praying such an audacious prayer? Well, because of these reasons. If you have notes, this is the first reason. We must pray for God's blessing, as we've talked about, so that the nations will sing his praise. So that the nations will sing his praise. This is repeated all throughout this short song. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. God wants everyone, everywhere, to know him, to know his fullness, to come into relationship with him so that they might be full of gladness, that they might be saved to sing, that they may sing his praise. I remember it was 2003 in the summertime. I was somewhere over the Atlantic flying toward a mission, summer mission trip, and I was reading a book. Uh, it's by John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad. I think it's on page one. I read this sentence that completely changed the way I understood missions. And this little sentence is this. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exists because worship doesn't. What he's saying there is simple. Wherever on earth that worship of the one true and living God is not happening that's where we have to go on mission. We have to go there and let them know the one true and living God so that they might be saved and in so doing sing the praises of God. That's the goal of missions. The goal of missions and the goal of the gospel is not simply to make converts, but a collective choir of saints that will sing the praises of God, that will do the very thing that we're actually made to do as humans, made in the image of God. We are made to worship. And if you don't worship the one true and living God, there's a million substitutes the world runs after instead. It could be religious ones. It could be irreligious ones. But we will, as humans, worship. It's inescapable. We're hardwired to do it. And what God is doing on mission is sending his people to places that do not yet worship him so that they might be saved to sing his praises. But not only that, we must pray for God's blessing so that the nations will sing his praise, but also that the nations would know his saving power, that they would know his saving power. We, this is really kind of getting at the reason why we sing. The, what is it that fuels our song? And in verse 2, it says, that your way, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all peoples. You see, God has a way of saving people. There's a way of salvation. This might jog your memory of Isaiah 35, where God speaks about this highway of holiness. Holiness simply means to be utterly devoted to God. There's this road in which these people that walk on it are utterly devoted to God and holiness, not because they're super righteous and checked all the boxes, but because they were rescued and redeemed and put on that road by grace. And so now there's this road, and it's not a, a road with asphalt, but the road is actually a person, Jesus Christ. And himself, Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is this way. He is that highway of holiness, this road to salvation. There are no other paths to God. There's many religions in our day that claim to lead you to God and to salvation. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Zoroastrianism, you, you name it, you pick it. There's, there's all of these different religions that claim to lead you to God, but they can't because they don't lead to Jesus. You got to get to Jesus. If you don't get to Jesus, there's no way to be saved. And not just getting to Jesus as though you kind of add him to your pantheon of gods. I was recently talking with 
uh, a neighbor. I was actually, uh, it was overseas when I was in India. And uh, he just kind of wanted to add Jesus to the thousands of other gods that he uh, worshipped and feared. And so, you know, Jesus would kind of be in the top three. Um, and if he did some really crazy miracles, he probably would take number one along with all of the other gods. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's exclusive worship of Jesus, that Jesus alone is God and Savior, so that it is through him who brings you to God. God the Father himself says, this is my son, listen to him. And Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and life. If you don't believe what Jesus says about himself, you reject everything the Father says about the Son, and you don't get either. You don't get the Father or the Son. Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We could spend a million lifetimes searching out a million other pathways, and it would all be for naught. Because Jesus has already said there's only one way. The Father says there's only one Son. There's only, as Jesus said, there's only one door. There's only one gate. There's this constant theme and message throughout Jesus' life of exclusivity. That is, all other options are dead ends. There's only one. Praise God there's one. Praise God that he has made a way. That he has, a, he has made a way for all people to know and be saved in Jesus. And so this is incumbent upon us. How do we, if we have come to know God through Jesus, how does this song kind of resonate through our lives? How does the fact that God shines his face on me shine out through me to others. And sometimes we get this idea that I need a plane ticket and have to cross an ocean and cross seven time zones to be on mission. And that's not true. You just got to cross your street. Just get to know your neighbor. Bring them over to your house. The mission field can be your dining room or your kitchen table as you sit down and get to know them. Ask them who they are. What's your story? And then share with them what God has done in your life and the wondrous works that he has worked in your own life and saving you. We live in a really unique season in world history where people can cross the entire globe within a few hours, and there's people coming. God is drawing people, really, from every nation, tribe, and tongue to countries like Canada and to cities like Toronto and the GTA and even Brantford that we have this amazing opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ, who otherwise would not have heard his name, from where they were coming or as easily accessible. What an opportunity you have. And to see, have, have, look through life through those kinds of glasses. Why does God have me in Brantford? Why am I in that apartment building, 817, on that floor? Why is that person across the hallway from, him, from me? Why, why am I on that street? Why am I in this classroom? Why am I in that night school? Why do I have that employee or coworker? Well, it's simple. It's because Jesus wants them to know who he is, and he's going to use you to sing it to them. He's going to use you as the gospel light has shone in your life, now is going to shine through you. As the gospel has been sung to you and you have received it, it's now going to sing out of your mouth and on your lips. That's why he has you on the street you're in. And that's why you're in the apartment building you're in. And that's why you're in the classroom you're in. God is doing everything on purpose. He doesn't do anything random. This is all a part of his plan so that all peoples might know his son Jesus and how to be saved. So we are to pray Psalm 67. We are to pray, oh God, would you bless us? Why? Not for my vainglory. No, no, no. But so that the nations would sing your praises so that the nations would know your saving power. And then lastly, second lastly, that they might see Jesus as their shepherd. That they might see Jesus as their shepherd. We get this from verse 4. Verse 4 says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? For, very important word, for, because... You judge the peoples with equity 
and guide the nations upon the earth. We see that there's two reasons here why the nations would be glad and sing for joy in the Lord. Because he judges with equity and he guides the nations. These two words really highlight the Lord as being a good shepherd, a good shepherd. You might be wondering, well, judging doesn't really sound nice. It doesn't really give that kind of shepherding vibe. But that's why it's important to look at that word. That word, um, there's several words in Hebrew that talk about God as judge or being or judging. This is the kind of word that highlights his discerning governance, that he has great discernment and great ability to govern people with equity, with equality. The idea is that it's God and God alone who knows all the facts and has all the pieces and is the only one to actually come in and remove injustice. He's the only one who can come in and rescue those who are being oppressed under some unfair, cruel injustice. He's the one who is the advocate, who can come alongside those who are suffering and be a voice to the voiceless. He's the one who hears the cry of the needy and of the poor, crying out for help, crying out for grace and mercy. He's the one who rushes in and defends them. That's what this word is getting across. This idea that God doesn't just have his ear tuned into Jews, but anyone from any nation that might cry out to him, he rushes in, and he's able with equity and equality and fairness bring justice and protection and help in our time of need. But not only is he this discerning governor, this judge, but he's also a good guide. He's a good guide. This word guide is what was attributed to kings of Israel that would faithfully lead the nation in wisdom, faithfully leading the people. The idea is similar to how God led his people through the wilderness as a shepherd, like a father leading his family. This is the idea. No one really knows this better than Israel themselves. I mean, they were the one, by God's grace, plucked up out of and rescued out of Egypt and led by God, guided by God through the wilderness for 40 years to be brought safely, finally, into the promised land. God is a good guide. He knows how to guide his people through every wilderness experience. And you might be in a wilderness experience today. It's essential for us to know, as Gentiles, many of you share in that with me as Gentiles, to know that this God is not just a good guide, but the perfect guide, the perfect and good shepherd. That's why David, King David, who for much of his life faithfully leaded, led the nation of Israel, could cry out personally, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David saw himself not just as a shepherd over the people of God, but also a sheep needing to be shepherded as a part of the flock of God. And this is very similar to how even the pastors and elders of your church, yes, they're called by God to help lead and guide and shepherd, all the while knowing that they themselves are sheep under the chief shepherd, under the good shepherd, needing his leading and guiding. And so we see here that the, for the reasons why we would ever pray this audacious prayer that God would bless us, we must, because otherwise the nations won't sing his praise. The nations won't hear of his saving power. The nations won't know him as a good shepherd. This is why God commanded his people to pray Psalm 67. And it was beginning to happen. The nations were beginning to praise him. You see this in verse 6. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. There's this idea the psalm takes a shift and say, look, this very thing that we're praying for, we're beginning to see it starting to take place. It's almost like picturing the world like this dead, barren field. And as God's people, as Israel believed 
all that God is in his word and were beginning to experience the fullness of God, they would sing his praises. And the other nations were kind of listening in and looking in on what God was doing among his people and like, what kind of a God can rescue out of Egypt and bring them into a promised land and give them such wise ways to live? What kind of a God is this? And they would come and join themselves to the Lord by faith. You started to see this all the way back with Moses, with his father-in-law. Do you remember Jethro? Jethro was a Midianite priest. He was a pagan priest. And yet, when he heard of all that God had done in rescuing his people and who this, the Lord was, he worshiped the Lord. You saw this with King David at his time. There were people from the surrounding nations, Hittites and Canaanites, beginning to now join themselves with David and to the Lord and beginning to worship the Lord. And then David's own son, King Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, traveled all the way to hear more of the Lord and all the wisdom that she had been hearing about in her own country. And when she arrived, she was blown away and she worshiped the Lord. We were beginning to see nations starting to come and Abraham's promise and Aaron's prayer beginning to be fulfilled even in the Old Testament. But then something happened. Something really bad happened. Israel began to exchange the Lord for the false religions of the peoples around them. That they who had the light of life began to exchange it for the darkness that was around them. And instead of singing to the nations around them about the glories of God, they switched playlists and started to worship and sing the praises of the fake gods that were among the nations all around them. And they embraced their darkness, and they became just as lost as those neighboring nations. And so we are left wondering, is God going to fulfill this promise? Is God able to fulfill what he said to Abraham and the prayer he gave Aaron? Is he able to actually do this now, or does God break his promises? Do they fall flat on the ground? God never breaks his promises. God always fulfills everything, every jot and tittle or the crossing of the T and the dotting of the I on every promises, every promise that he has ever said in the word of God. And the way he fulfills it is by coming and doing it himself. By him coming. And so the Father sends his son, Jesus Christ, as one of the descendants of Abraham in order to fulfill the promise given to Abraham, that through Abraham, all the peoples of the world would be blessed, and that is because they put faith in his descendant, Jesus Christ. God the Son comes to earth as Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest, who is the better Aaron, who actually not only prays this prayer, but fulfills it, that he not only causes his face to shine on his people, but he is the very face of God, as 2 Corinthians talks about, that the face of God is seen in, in Jesus Christ. We even sang about that this morning. I love the songs. I had no idea we were singing all these songs. But even in one of those songs, it talks about how the, the Father who is unseen is now seen in the incarnate Christ. Now the very smile of God has been made flesh. And Jesus is now able to shine the smile of God and the face of God upon all peoples of all nations as they turn to his light. This is what God himself said he was going to do in Isaiah 49, verse 6. It's too light of a thing. It's too small of a thing that you, Jesus, my son, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's too small of a thing for God to send his son just to rescue one people group called the Jews. He can save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so God is making a way for this to happen so that he might be a light to the nations, which Jesus himself says that's why he's here in John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus 
is the light of the world, the light of eternal life, the very face of the Father shining upon his people who put faith and trust in Jesus in the same way that Abraham trusted the Lord. Jesus is the answer to Psalm 67. He's the one who comes and accomplishes this song. He's the one that this psalm is pointing to. Now, anyone from any nation can come to know Jesus Christ and put their faith in him and know the blessing of God, know the fullness of God, know his forgiveness, know what it's like to be washed clean and justified and and adopted into his family and have the spirit of God dwell within us. We can now know God. This is so powerful. This is such an encouragement. This year actually marks the 200th anniversary that my ancestors floated across a boat and landed in Canada. They were coming here as immigrants, seeking refuge, seeking a better life. And by God's grace, the gospel had come to them way back in England. And not all my ancestors were saved. But there was a line of the gospel kind of trickling down to the point where I heard the gospel from my mom. And I was saved at a young age. Amen. But it can't stop here. It's got to keep going. It's got to keep rolling. Why is God bringing the nations to our city but that they might know him? They might hear us sing the gospel. It cannot stay with us. And already we're seeing it. Already we're seeing the gospel spread to all nations. I mean, just looking around here among your church family. And I love looking around in our church family out in Mississauga and visiting all these churches, especially in the GTA, of how God is winning people to himself, adopting them into his family, saving them by grace from every nation, tribe, and tongue. A couple of stats here that I find so encouraging. There's roughly 700 million believers in the world. It's about one in 10 people around the globe. That's incredible. And the number of believers is increasing at such a rate, even today, that it's growing, it's outpacing converts to Islam by two times and converts to Hinduism by three times. Gospel is is exploding, particularly in certain countries. For the sake of time, I won't go into every detail. So it's amazing what God is doing, and yet there are still many who have not yet heard the name of Jesus. There are millions. Look at the country of Pakistan. There are almost 200 million people there that not just 99% of them aren't believers. They have little to no access of even hearing about Jesus. Almost 200 million people. Almost seven times the population of Canada. In India, there's 1.3 billion people. There are over 2,000 people groups, many of them ranging from millions to tens of millions of people who who have never heard the gospel. There are villages, half a million villages, half, half, a, half a million villages in India that have no history of ever hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's, there's no record of the gospel ever coming to their village today, right now. There are people in Papua New Guinea right now, there's tribes that are hearing neighboring tribes on the other side of the mountain having received a message about this Jesus and completely transforming them. And they're wondering, well, when is it coming to our side of the mountain? And they're even threatening to commit war and destroy that tribe in order to get the gospel and get someone to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. There's such an eagerness in God's kindness in certain spots of the world. There's a a hunger to hear this song, to hear about Jesus. And so maybe God is stirring in your heart. Maybe you are one of those ones that not only go across the street, but across the world. We need both. It's going to look different for each person. How are these people going to hear unless someone is sent? As Romans 10 says, how then will they call on him whom they have not yet believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone going, without someone singing? 
the gospel to them. And as sobering as it is to know that there are many people who have not yet heard the gospel, and as exciting as it is to know that the gospel is going out an incredible pace right now, it's also shocking to realize that over the course of history, the gospel has come into certain cultures and areas and borne much fruit and seen revival. And many people come to Christ, but then over the decades and over the centuries, those people begin to abandon the gospel and discard it in exchange for something else. And a great example, a sad example, would be many European countries and Canada itself. But the most striking example would be the people group that were given this psalm. Out of the 15 million Jews approximately on this globe, only 0.5% would call Jesus Lord and Savior, their Messiah, Mashiach. That is so concerning because they were given this psalm to sing to the Gentiles that the Gentiles might know who the one true and living God is. And now God through Jesus Christ has gone and saved many, many Gentile believers And one of the reasons is so that we might in turn sing it back to Israel, might sing it back to Jews. The roles have been reversed. They were to sing it to us, but now we in Christ are now able to sing it to them. This is a part of our calling. They're one of the many nations. God has given us a mission. The family business, so to speak, is spreading the name of Jesus Christ and making disciples of Jesus Christ from all nations, including that one nation, Israel. It's a part of the Great Commission. Sometimes we forget that. And so this is a part of what we are called to do so that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue might worship him or as the psalm ends in verse 7, might fear him. Do you see that? Verse 7 says, let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is our last point. We must pray that God would bless us so that every nation would fear and worship him. They would fear and worship him. Now, when you see this word fear, sometimes we can, it can conjure up this wrong idea that God is uh, unpredictable, that he's angry, this horrific, terrifying, scary idea of God. That's not what it's trying to communicate at all. Rather, to fear the Lord is to have this holy reverence for God, this awe and respect for God because he's God. He has all power, no limit. That's the omni part of the omnipotence of God. There's no limit to his power. And he could have used that to judge us in punishment, but he used it to rescue us. So there's this awe of, I can't believe that God would use all that power to rescue me. And yet at the same time, God in his love disciplines his children. And so there is a holy fear, a reverence for God to say, I I don't want to be disloyal to that kind of a loving God. I don't want to disobey because I know God in his love will correct me and discipline me and bring me back online. He loves me too much to let me stray. He will always bring me back. And there is a good, healthy fear of the Lord that keeps us walking in love and worship of God. And, and when we do that, it frees us from all sorts of other fearful worship of other things. I don't know what culture and background you come from, but I got some weird superstitions from my cultural background, like the number 13 and walking under a ladder and seeing a, a black cat run in front of you. I, I don't know where these things came from, but there's a superstition that that's some bad luck in some way. I was talking with a friend of mine who's from a Caribbean island. He said, you have to walk into, I think, your mom's house backwards, lest, uh, anyway, some ancestors would catch you or they're dead and deceased. There's all these different superstitions. Maybe you come from a people group that's captured by this, uh, this, this idea of the evil eye. If you see it on a pottery or if there's some sort of tribal marking on you, there's certain superstitions, and you fear that because it... And as soon as you fear that, you give it power and control in your life. And you totally forget, oh, wait a minute. 
Jesus, who rose from the dead, has all authority on heaven and on earth. And all of these superstitions is just a really fancy long word for lie. They're lies. You, you don't find them in the scripture at all. We are called to love and fear the Lord our God and believe his word alone. It gives me great freedom then to walk under a ladder and live in apartment 13. I'm in Christ. I, I don't fear anything. I fear the living God. I'm a child of God. And so this is one of the ways in which every nation, as they hear us sing the gospel in our life, and the light of the gospel shines out, they hear of his saving power. They hear and watch and see his shepherding care. And they learn that they don't need to fear anything in this world, but to love and worship and fear the one true and living God. And you may be wondering today, as we close, yeah, but I... I have, I have a simple job, I, I live in a simple house, I live in a small road. How am I going to have any role in this? What do I do practically? I'm glad you asked. You have an incredible opportunity. There's a reason, as we've already said, why you live where you live and work where you work and go to school where you go to school. So there's three things I want you to prayerfully consider today and this week to begin asking the Lord. Here are these three things. Pray this song. Pray this song. Pray with a thankful heart that you as a, as a believer are actually a part of the answer to this song. Someone sang it earlier in your life and you got saved. And then begin to pray, God, would you use me to sing this song to others? Pray. Pray this song. Secondly, give toward the fulfillment of this song. Give toward the fulfillment of this song. The very fact that this church is here, is a part of the answer to that prayer. Because people gave, gave money, gave time, gave talents, treasures, time into this. It, it takes money to rent buildings and schools. It takes money to translate Bible into new languages. And so ask the Lord, how can I continue to give? I, I'm so thankful that this church is a part of this partnership or team of churches that started this new church plant in North Toronto. It was just there last week with Pastor Jeff. So encouraging what God is doing. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep praying. God, keep it not here. Keep it spreading. Keep it spreading to other towns and cities and global villages all over the world. Lastly, pray, give, and go. Go. Go and live out this song. Begin to pray, God, do you want me to go to India, to Pakistan, to Mongolia? Do you want me to go there or do you want me to go across the street? Either way, I don't know what the Lord's going to say in your life, but I do know, I do know he's, he's saying go. He, he, all of us, this is a part of what it means to be in the family, is going and singing and sharing and casting the light of the gospel through us that has been shining on us in Christ. Pray, give, go.